traits of my mom. And so you look at these two similarities, the same traits between a father and a son, and if you make that connection, you can say, yes, they are one family. And so what are those traits that Joseph and Jesus share? Not physical, not biological, but spiritual. And that's what we're going to study today. We're going to look at these traits of Joseph that are pointing forward to who Jesus is. And we're going to do this character study on this Joseph. So to do that, we're just going to do it under two headings. I'm not going to list them out in the beginning. We'll do it as we go. But the first one is going to be Joseph as someone who is just and merciful. Joseph as just and merciful. And I'm getting this from verse 19. If you look at it, we see that Matthew, he calls Joseph a just man. And now that word just, if you call somebody just, it can have a, a variety of meanings. You can be just if you're a, a defender of human rights, if you're fighting against human trafficking, for example. You can be just if you don't cheat on your taxes. You can be just if you help an elderly person cross the street. But in this context, when Matthew's writing that word that Joseph was just, he's not talking about those things, but he's talking about according to God's law, the Ten Commandments, all the stipulations and rules that God had given the Israelites in the Old Testament that Joseph was a just man according to God's law. Uh, the NIV translation, I believe it translates it, Joseph was faithful to the law. That's what just means. So that's what Matthew is talking about here. Joseph, he lives according to God's law, his word. And secondly, Matthew writes, not only is he just, but he is merciful. He writes, he was a just man and unwilling to put her, Mary, to shame. And he resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, that combination, the combination of being just and merciful, that is a trait that we are going to see in God himself and ultimately in Jesus Christ. And how we're going to understand that, we have to know a little bit about the background. If you look at verse 18, you're going to see that Joseph was what to Mary? He was betrothed. And when we read that word, we have to understand what that means back then because it's not the same thing as being engaged. If we think about being engaged today, all you need is a ring and an Instagram photo to prove it. And if you have those two things, then you are officially engaged, right? But back then, it didn't work like that. It took a lot more than an Instagram photo. It took a lot more than a ring. A future husband would have to prepare a, an enormous dowry presented to the future wife and to her father. And when he does so, there are a, a bunch of witnesses around. And he has to sign a contractual agreement that legally binds him as her husband. And after he signs that contractual agreement, they are technically married, and they are in this betrothed situation for one year. And they have to wait one year before they can formally uh, consummate their marriage and live together and be uh, with one another. And what that means is that by the time that they are betrothed, by the time he signs this agreement, they are man and wife. They just haven't been able to consummate their marriage. Which explains why that though they're only betrothed, we see later in our passage that Joseph, that in response to Mary being pregnant, what does he resolve to do? He divorces her. That's his resolve. And that makes sense because back then it was so commitment-based. 
If you were betrothed to someone, it was as if you are married to that person. And if you want to separate, if you want to break off the wedding, you have to divorce her. That's how much weight being betrothed meant back then. You can't just call off the wedding day. That's why in verse 19, he makes up his mind to divorce her quietly. Now, to be just according to God's law, finding out that his future wife is pregnant, that means most likely that she had an affair with someone else. If that's not the case, then what other people are going to think is that Joseph, he betrayed his betrothal vows, and he was with Mary before they were allowed to, before that one year of separation. And that's one of two conclusions that people are going to make. Now, if the first is true, that she had an affair with someone else, for Joseph to be just and to live according to God's law, I'll read Deuteronomy chapter 22 for us. If the evidence of virginity was not found in the young woman, then they shall bring out the woman to the door of her father's house, and the men of the city shall stone her to death with stones. To be just according to God's law, that's what Joseph could have done. That's what he could have executed on Mary. Now, her pregnancy is not going to be a private matter. People are going to do the math that before they're actually married and consummated their marriage, that she's going to start to show. They're going to see that she's already pregnant. So we here have a situation where Joseph has to make a decision. What is he going to do? Him being fully just, this is at his disposal. He can publicly shame her. He can even have her put to death. Even if he doesn't want to be as severe as her being stoned, he could have a public trial, bring witnesses to all the people, and then he could clear his name and say, I'm not the father of this child. It was her. Because if you think about it, people are going to already make assumptions. They're going to assume that Joseph, he went against his marriage vows, and he spent his time with Mary before they were allowed to. But in a society that was so much valued, so much value in, in, in your reputation, in your honor, that's what he should have done if he was just. But he doesn't do that. He resolves in his mind to divorce her quietly, not stone her, not publicly divorce her, but to do it quietly so that she is not put to shame. Especially in a society back then, if your reputation as a woman, that determined how you were going to have your family, how the rest of your life was going to be. So we see not only was Joseph just, but he was merciful, not willing to put her to shame. And that meant a lot. It meant a lot for Joseph. Because if you think about it, if people see that Joseph is going to divorce, divorce her quietly, they're going to assume that he's hiding something. Why not make it public? Why not clear your name in front of all the people? They'll probably assume that he actually did go against his betrothal vows. Not only that, if you divorce somebody quietly, that back then he cannot get his dowry back. It's gone. Only if he does a public hearing can he receive all the money, all the dowry that he spent to have Mary for his wife. But he forgoes all of that and he resolves to divorce her uh, quietly. Now, when we pick this up on Joseph, we're going to see how this is reflective of God. 
And in that, we see that Jesus is in the same line, same family line that shows this justness, the justice of God, and at the same time, the love of God, his mercy. And it's those two things, the combination of those those two things that we must keep in mind when we think about God. It is reflective of who God is. For Joseph to embody both being just and merciful is far more reflective of God than we make it out to be. Because when we think about God, when we think about who God is, a lot of the times we think of one or the other. That God is just or God is a God of love. For example, if you go out into the main line and you go talk to one of your neighbors and he or she is not a believer, and you talk to them about who God is, and you say, God is a just God who is holy and he hates sin and wickedness. And because you are a sinful creature, that you are fully deserving of his wrath and eternal damnation. What's your response going to be? It's going to be completely offensive to them, isn't it? They're going to call you narrow-minded. They're going to call you bigoted. But at the very least, what you said is true. God is just. God is fully holy. God is fully righteous, and he is just to put down his wrath against evil and sin. But if you tell that same person that God is a God of love, he loves everyone, he accepts everyone, how is that person going to receive that? They're going to receive that a lot better, aren't they? Because for them, in their mind, a God of love is what defines who God is for them. But if you take that same situation, say that you go to the family of refugees in Syria, and you tell them that God is a God of love, he forgives everyone. He's merciful. It's going to be very offensive to them because they want a God of justice. If you talk to a child who's been abused growing up and you say, God is a God of love. He's merciful. He forgives everyone. It's highly offensive to them because for them, they don't want a God of love. They want a God of justice. And for us to think one is more important than the other, it doesn't do justice to who God is in the Bible. Even if you think of God as being a God of love, you have to consider what the Bible says about him. You know, recently I did a search throughout the whole Bible, and I looked at all the instances where God's wrath and his holiness was attached to his name. I found 225 times God's wrath and God's name. 513 times God's holiness and God's name. I did the same thing with God's mercy and God's forgiveness. 67 times. 119 times. If you want to do justice to who God is, a good description of who God is, you cannot have one without the other. God is a God who is just, and God is a God who is love. But it's the combination of those two things that we see in Scripture, and that's the God of the Bible. It's not one or the other. Here's the litmus test. Say that you go out to the Middle East, and you speak to them about a God who is holy and just, who brings judgment upon sinners, they're going to have no problems with that. But you tell them about a God of love who welcomes everyone into his family, regardless of what they do. All it requires is faith. It doesn't matter how you live your life. It doesn't matter how you try to please God. That's completely offensive to them. But it's very different in our world, in our society, in the Western culture, isn't it? Ask an atheist from America, and you ask them, why can't you believe in the existence of God? And you know what most likely their answer is going to be? 
I can't believe in a God who would send people to hell. I can't believe in a God who's so hateful. Right? You ask that refugee, say that he or she is an atheist. Why can't you believe in a God? I can't believe in a God who will allow all this to happen. I can't believe in a God who is not just. It depends where you're coming from. But if you have one more than the other, then we got to make sure that we do justice to who God is. And Joseph, he reflects that the combination of God being just and God of love and mercy. For most of us, it's easy to identify with one more than the other. For example, for some of you, you think God is a just God more than a God of love because every time you sin and you look at your life, that you're afraid, you're frustrated with your sins. You're sick and tired of, of, of disobeying God's law and God's word time and time after again. And you have this view of God who is big and fearful and he's coming down upon your life for not giving him your whole heart. It might be more of that view. But for some of us, we're so dominated by this vision of God who is a God of love that we, every time we sin, we think, he's going to forgive me anyway. Every time that we don't live our lives to the full extent of giving him glory, we're going to think, you know, God understands. Or there are things that you know you should not be doing. You think, God is a God of love. Do you see how even individually that we try to take one aspect of God and put it above the other, and that's not doing justice to who God is. God is both God who is holy and loving, just and merciful. Joseph embodies both. We must uphold both of God's justice and his mercy. Not a God that we make up in our minds, not a God that we want, not a God that we craft, not a God that we design for ourselves because it fits our culture, our context, my life. Right now, I want a God who helps me. Right now, I want a God who provides for me. Right now, I want a God who helps fix this. What about what you need as a God who needs to tell you how to live your life, to live for him? We need to do justice to who God is in Scripture. And where do you see that? Where do you see God who is a God of justice, a God of love? You know, D.A. Carson, one of my favorite uh, Christian writers, he writes, where do you find God's wrath? He writes, you look at the cross. Where do you find God's love? He writes, you look at the cross. And it's only Jesus Christ in the Bible that fully embodies both. Because if you look at the cross, you're going to see God's wrath you're going to see God's justice. God's justice against the sins that you and I have committed and all of it, every single sin that you and I have committed in the past, in the present, and in the future, fully accounted for upon that cross. You're going to see God's justice upon that cross, but at the same time, you're going to see God's love because the sins that Jesus is receiving wrath for, they're not his. They're yours and they're mine. And on that same cross, you're going to see the most beautiful expression of love and mercy that you will ever experience. But it's never one without the other. It's both. And that's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of person Joseph is exemplifying, being just and merciful. And once you fully realize what that means in Christmas, 
It's not just about these feelings about hot chocolate and these Christmas carols, but it's about a God who is just, who is coming down to earth, who is coming to reconcile all these things that profane his name. But at the same time, he comes in the most vulnerable way you could imagine in a form of a man, of a baby. Both God's justice and love. And once you fully understand that, know that hymn? How can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldest die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that my God should thou die for me? That's what Christmas is, a God who is both just and loving and willing to come to earth to embody both. That's what we see. The next thing we see in Joseph, this next pair of traits, we see Joseph as one of faith and submission. One of faith and submission. That's the second litmus test to see how Joseph is related to Jesus. So we see after Joseph makes up his mind to divorce her quietly, we see an intervention. In verse 20, if you look with me, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream saying, Joseph, Son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And putting Joseph in this situation puts him in a position to show this faith, to show this submission to God. Track with me. First of all, the angel tells him to go ahead and marry this girl, Mary to take her as his wife. And that has huge repercussions for him. Because if Joseph marries her, who is visibly pregnant, people are going to think that it is Joseph's child. They're going to think that Joseph went against his vows for the rest of his life. Every time a neighbor looks at that family, they're going to think of Joseph and Mary, who went against their vows. They're going to look at that child, they're going to whisper behind their back. And back then, it's not as if you can just pick up your things and go to the next town. Most often, you were born in a town, you lived in that town, and you died in that town. That's what the angel was asking Joseph to bear. And as if that wasn't enough, you know the next thing that the angel says? She didn't have an affair with anyone else. She's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine Joseph with his friends saying, it's not mine, um, the Holy Spirit uh, did this. Can you imagine the responses that people are going to have in such a communal society? And as if that wasn't enough, the angel tells him, not only is she conceived by the Holy Spirit, but the child in her womb is the promised Messiah, the Emmanuel, the one who's coming to save the whole world. Can you imagine the faith that Joseph needs to have? to actually believe it and to actually take her as his wife, knowing that the rest of his life, his reputation, his place in society, it's going to cost him. Joseph, at the most, 22 years old, that's when they got married back then. Mary, at the most, 14 years old, their whole lives in front of them. And to have this faith that takes God at his word. And it's not only faith, but it's a faith that leads to what? Submission. 
a faith that doesn't just simply stay in one's mind or one's heart, but a faith that actually shows itself in one's actions. And Jesus uh, and Joseph does take Mary as his wife. Can you imagine just Joseph? He's getting ready to marry the girl of his dreams. And he has all of these plans. This is going to happen. We're going to have two kids. We're going to have a white picket fence. We're going to have a, a, a what's, what's popular these days? A collie? Not a collie. What's those long dogs? I see them all the time. Corgis. Can you imagine all of those plans down the drain? Can you imagine what it's going to cost Joseph? What it's going to cost Mary? for whatever plans, whatever expectations that they had to be as a family, to lay them aside, to take God as his word and say, this is not just any ordinary child. This is the son of God. You're going to have to change your life around. You're going to have to adjust some things. Your parenting skills are going to be very different. That's the kind of faith that Joseph needs to have to act upon God's word. And that's the kind of faith that leads to submission. And that's the kind of faith that you brothers and sisters and I need to have. A faith that doesn't just stay in here, a faith that doesn't stay upon the screen, but a faith that actually shows itself in the way that we sacrifice, in the way that we submit to God's word, to take it at his word. For Joseph to take her as his wife, it's going to cost a lot. It's going to require submission. And as if that wasn't enough, the angel tells Joseph, you know what, Joseph, you don't even get to name this child. He's not your biological son. He's conceived by the Holy Spirit. And you know what, you don't even get to name him. Back then, in that patriarchal society, it meant the world to name your son. It showed that you have ownership of that son. It shows that you have authority over that son. And the angel says, you don't even get to do that. You've named him Jesus. Do you know the amount of faith that Joseph is required to have? Even to this day, my sister, she's about seven years older than me, she says, I have a claim to you. You know why? Because she named me. (laughs) When I was born, she was one of the first peoples to see me, and she saw, thought that I was a girl, literally. So she gave me a Korean girl name. If you Google search it, you're going to see a lot of Korean girls come up. And to this day, she says, I named you. It's something, when I hear that, I feel like I'm not myself. I don't have full property of my being. All the more back then, to name someone was to have authority, was to claim that person as your own. Remember Adam, naming the animals. He had to forego that. He had to submit that to the Lord. And what we see in Joseph is a trait that should challenge all of us because this is the kind of faith that we're supposed to have. It is not a faith that just confesses that Jesus is Lord. It's not a faith that just says, okay, this gospel thing, this Christianity thing, it makes sense in my mind. It's not that kind of faith. It's a kind of faith that actually leads to submission, a faith that actually costs you your life that confesses Jesus not only as Savior, but as King. And yes, there will be decisions. There will be sacrifice. It will cost you to follow him. And when we do say things like, Lord, I dedicate my life to you. I will give you my life. Well, do you know what that really means? It means that it's going to require submission to take those and make those hard decisions 
to honor him and to glorify him. And it's going to take that sacrifice. It's a kind of faith that shows submission in the way that you actually believe what God's word is saying. You actually believe that this is God's word in the Bible. And if you did so, that you find yourself lost in his words. It's a kind of faith that, that makes you get on your knees and pray. And you pray to God and you commune with God and you get up and you don't remember how long you've been there because you were so lost in his presence. It is that kind of faith that opens up your Bible and reads about who God is, your maker, your creator, and you're not looking at the clock, but you're just lost in his glory and his holiness. It's that kind of faith. You know, one of the most well-known professors of early Christianity, believe it or not, he's an atheist, uh, University of North Carolina, Bart Ehrman, um, in his intro to religious studies class, the first question he asks his students is, how many of you guys believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? And being an introduction to religion's class, all of the students, most of them, they raise their hands. And the next question he asks is, how many of you have read The Hunger Games by Susan Collins? Most of them raise their hands. And then he asks this question, how many of you have read the Bible from cover to cover? Nobody. And he asks, if it's the voice of God whom you claim to have created the world and created you, and you have never read his words, how can you say this is the inspired word of God? That's the kind of faith that Joseph is showing. That's the kind of faith that you and I need to have. It's called functional faith. A faith that leads to submission to God's will for our lives. It's a faith that doesn't just simply claim the things that we want of God, but takes him as our Lord, as our King, and as our Savior. When we read things in Scripture that says you must die to yourself daily and take up your cross and follow Christ, and when you read things like Paul that says, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Even as a non-Christian, those words sound attractive, doesn't it? For someone to be so convicted about something that he considers everything else rubbish... It's a faith that leads to submission, that leads to life transformation. And it is a difference between knowing about God and knowing God. Knowing about God's forgiveness and truly experiencing God's forgiveness. Knowing about sacrifice, but to actually sacrifice for him. To not only just encounter God, but to be immersed in God. There is a difference. You know, one of my favorite movies from the 90s, I think about half of you will know. Uh, this movie called Goodwill Hunting. And if you remember, or if you haven't, it's about this boy who grows up, he's an orphan, he ends up being a mathematical genius, undiscovered. Eventually, professors discover him, but he has so much hurt and pain in his past that he needs to undergo counseling. And there's this famous scene at this park bench in Boston where he's sitting down with this counselor professor, Robin Williams. And Robin Williams, he asks him, he tells him, because he's really smart. He read every book. He goes, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, 
you know a lot about him. Life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You never actually stood there, looked up at that beautiful ceiling, seen that? You're a tough kid. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more unto the breach, dear friends, but you've never been near one. You never held your best friend's head in your lap, watched him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you'd probably quote me a sonnet. But you never looked at a woman and been totally vulnerable known someone that could level you with her eyes, feeling like God put an angel on earth just for you. And you wouldn't know what it's like to be her angel, to have that kind of love for her, to be there for her forever, through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know anything about sleeping and sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that the term visiting hours do not apply to you. A few years ago, I went to the Vatican, and I went to the Sistine Chapel. I looked at that ceiling, and I got a taste of what Michelangelo did. I got a taste of what Michelangelo did as he was hanging down by the ropes, making every intricate detail with fresco paint, paint falling in his eyes. I know what it smells like there. It smells like the sweat of Taurus. (laughs) I know what it feels like there. But all these things that I can tell you about Sistine Chapel is not on the internet. You can't tell me these things by looking at a picture, but you actually have to be there. Can you tell me about God? Or are you with God? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what faith looks like. Do you know what it's like to be lost in God's presence? To see that, to feel that. Do you know what it's like to be on your knees and to pray and you don't care how long you're there for? When was the last time you experienced that? When was the last time you saw God's word and say, wow, that's who my God is? Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the greatest American theologians ever lived. And he writes a lot. And he will spend a lot of his time walking around in nature, just writing things that he sees and looking at God's presence in all of nature. You know, one time he wrote 3,500 words about a spider, talking about how God is so great to design this spider and his intricate webs. I read it. It was boring. (laughs) But at the end of it, you know what he writes? Hence, may we behold and admire at the wisdom of the Creator and be convinced that His exercise about such little things and admire also the Creator in so nicely and mathematically adjusting their multiplying nature that though they're eaten by birds, that they do not decrease, but they still continue to increase little by little. That's a scientist immersed in God's presence. There's another story of a man, late 18th century, spent a lot of his time walking around looking at nature, and he too was looking at spiders. Something about spiders, I guess you really can see God's presence. One day he was in his garden just staring at the spider, and his butler comes up to him, and he says, Sir, 
have you found God? And he replies, I believe he's found me. And you would think to spend all of your time staring at a spider, stare, spending your time on your knees, praying and reading God's word, that it's a waste of time. There's so much things that you need to do. You would think it's a waste of time. But that man who was staring at that spider, his name is William Wilberforce, who led the abolitionist slavery movement, who with John Newton penned those words, amazing grace. It's not a waste of time. It actually produces in you a life that is worth living for, a life worth living for him. There is a difference between what we confess with our mouth and the way that we live our lives. That's what we see in Joseph. And that's what we're going to see in Jesus Christ. Because when God says, I love you too much, that he doesn't stay in heaven, but is a functional faith that actually comes down to earth and hungers and thirsts and feel sickness. It cost him sickness. You. What does it cost you to follow him? 30 minutes waking up, praying. Emmanuel. God with us, crossed the chasms of heaven, taking the form of a child, being born in a manger. And those who are found in his family line will show love and justice and embody at the same time faithful submission to his will. That's what Christmas means. Let's pray.